Scripture reading this morning is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and it's uh, found on page 1065. Um, And it reads like this. And he returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is God's word. work in our hearts. Grant unction to the hearer and preacher alike. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. I was speaking this week to one of our youth on Wednesday night and I was talking to her about what Easter meant. Uh, And as we talked, I was trying hard to convey the reality. Hold on a second, I'm, I'm being flagged from the top. I'm muted, sorry. There we go. Uh, as, uh, As we talked, I was trying to convey the reality of Easter. You know, a lot of times, and I'm saying this because we're coming up to Easter. Next week is Palm Sunday, and then the week after that is Resurrection Sunday, Easter. And as we, oftentimes as we have grown up in the church, we talk about these things uh, academically. We talk about these things and forget they really happened. That Jesus was a corpse. He was in rigor mortis. He had begun to decay. God wouldn't leave him there to decay. His body smelled. And then he was alive. This really happened. Jesus certainly made a stir on that Easter morning. But for the last three years of his ministry, he had been used to that. He had been making quite a stir throughout the whole region of Palestine. And the report of him had gone beyond those bounds even. That's certainly what we get this morning. The picture of Christ from the Bible is not that of... A good moral teacher, someone just to listen to but add to a whole pantheon of other inspirational speakers. No, Jesus Jesus is God. For the last three years, he, before he died, he had been going around and, and preaching and teaching and healing. And in Mark 1, we see the beginning of this ministry where he had gone through Galilee healing Uh, Folks of many diseases and healing folks of leprosy and driving out demons. 
To the point where he couldn't even go into town anymore without the, the crowd just thronging to him so that he couldn't even go about his daily life. Jesus came more than just a, a moral teacher or someone who came to make us prosperous. You hear that a lot on TV. He came to deal with our deepest need, and that's our sin. How could he? Because he's God. When the people looked at Jesus of Nazareth in those days, they beheld God himself. So what's the call from this passage? Trust in Jesus for your deepest need because he's God. Very simple. So chapter 2 opens with Jesus just having returned to Capernaum. Capernaum was his home base of operations during his three years of ministry. He didn't travel the whole time, but would come back for respite in Capernaum. And there he was, the text says, at home. Now we don't know if the at home was Peter's home. Uh, where we know he at least spent some time, or, or perhaps it was the home of where his mother, Mary, and uh, his siblings had moved to. We, we don't know. Perhaps it was a home that a faithful disciple had let him use. We're not real sure, but this was his home. And he was there after a long journey. He'd been preaching in Galilee, doing mighty wondrous things. Have you ever just gotten home from a long journey and in walks in somebody? And they want to sit down for a long chat. And you're, you know, your bags are unpacked, your dirty clothes are all over the place. You're trying to figure out what tomorrow's going to hold. You have nothing in the house to feed them. You're exhausted. Well, this is what happens here. Jesus has returned home from an important Galilean ministry. And all of a sudden, there is a great crowd of people at his house. The crowd is so great, it's not just standing room only. I mean, they're spilling out. They're in the doorway and out in the courtyard, out around his house, trying to look into the windows to hear Jesus and what he was all about. There would have been at least three groups in this crowd. The first are certainly his disciples, at least some of them. Some of them who had become apostles that had been traveling with him and people who lived in Capernaum who loved Jesus and had heard he was home and were excited to see him. Then you have what one commentator called the rubberneckers. You know, these are the people who slow down traffic when something has happened off the interstate. You know, who just want to look at it as they go by. And the next thing you know, you're going 15 miles an hour. The rubberneckers were there. They were curious about Jesus. We've heard he's done mighty wonders and he teaches with authority. Who is this guy? Let's go hear it about him. The third group, though, wasn't so amenable to Jesus. We find a better description in the Luke version of the story. It's recorded in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke 5, 17, we, were, we hear of this third group, and they were Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. These guys were opposed to Jesus' ministry. They were jealous of the attraction, of, of that, he, that he was attracting such large crowds. The people were listening to him rather than the Pharisees and the scribes. They didn't like what he, they were, that he was doing with the law of God. and The things he was saying was starting to make them a little nervous. They were there that day sitting in his house not to see him do wondrous signs and see people healed, but to catch Jesus. 
to try to hear him say something that they could use against him later. And indeed, in Mark 3, you begin to see this movement within this gospel of the Pharisees and the scribes collaborating with the Romans to begin to find a way to destroy Jesus. And certainly what happens in our text this morning would have gone into their decision to seek to destroy our Savior. So there they were, the house was standing room only. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. Note, that's what the text says. He was preaching the word. We're given the content of his sermons back in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He would say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There he is, preaching the good news, calling people to repentance out of their self-reliance and to find forgiveness and salvation in him. He had brought the kingdom of God with him, and now he was inviting folks to be a part of it through conversion. But there were these five guys. These five guys who couldn't get in. We learn about them in verse 3. Now, one of these guys was a paralytic. We don't know to what extent, but he certainly couldn't move. He certainly couldn't get around on his own. And then four other guys, his friends, his family, we, we don't know who these people were. They had heard all that Jesus had done. They had heard that Jesus had healed these folks of various diseases back in Mark 1 all over Galilee. The demons had been excised. Demons had come out of folks. People's lives had been changed forever. And souls have been saved. They said, we've got to get to this guy. They had strong faith in Christ's ability to undo what no one else could undo, to bring healing to legs and arms that did not move. We live in an age of modern medicine where, you know, through therapy and these sorts of things, we've seen things like this, but not in these days. Not in these days. Can you imagine being paralyzed back then? Today we have a social safety net, right? Today we have agencies that help. Now, I'm not saying it's easy these days. I'm not saying that. But certainly in Jesus' day, to be paralyzed was, was almost a death sentence. You were dependent upon others to be able to just get around and to eat and to cook food. And, and here they are, these four perhaps great friends. Maybe they are high school buddies, right? They brought him to Jesus. What a great paradigm, by the way, for us to live, that we would be bringing people to Jesus. May that be our task. May that define our lives, that we would be bringers to Jesus, just like this, these four were. There was a problem, though. They couldn't get to Jesus. The way was blocked. They couldn't even get in the door. They were desperate for help, and they knew the way. They were so close. They weren't going to let anything stop them. So what did they do? They climbed up on the roof. Have you been here on Wednesday nights when the, uh, the children upstairs are tromping down the hallway? My son likes to wear boots. Uh, he's probably the, the chief offender. Now imagine, there you are in Jesus' home, and it's crowded. It's not just standing room only. I mean, you can hardly breathe in this place. And you hear a thump, 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 thump. And people scurrying up on the, up on the roof. You're like, what in the world is going on? Somehow these men had gotten on top of the roof. Can you imagine the difficulty of getting a paralytic on top of a roof? 
And then as they're sitting there, suddenly through the, um, the roof, which would have been made of beams with rafters across the top of those with um, uh, palm branches or something like that, within mud mixed with uh, straw laid on top of that and pounded down hard to make it waterproof and strong. Then all of a sudden, as you're sitting there listening to Jesus, these fingers start coming through the, the ceiling. And it's not a neat thing. You're not pulling back sheets of, uh, of asphalt tile like at our house. I mean, there, there are things falling down on people's head. And a lot of it, right? Because it's got to be a big enough hole to lower, probably by, probably by ropes, a stretcher, a bed, with a paralyzed guy down through it. Now, what did Jesus think about that? Was he mad that someone had interrupted the worship service? I'm sorry, this isn't on the bulletin. We can't do this right now. No. He looked at him in verse 5. Or Jesus says, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Note the text says, their faith. And that's an interesting thing. He doesn't just look at the guy. I mean, certainly he must have believed in Christ for his sins to be forgiven. But, but this is a group of people together who were desperate for help. And they knew that Jesus could do it. He looks at their faith. And he heals or forgives the paralytic. This certainly wasn't what they were expecting, was it? They came for healing. But Jesus dealt with a deeper need. Imagine if this man had left that day with limbs that had been healed, but a soul that had not been forgiven. He would have had a much better life, and then he would have died and gone to hell. Jesus looked at this man and knew the deeper need. Yes, you need some new legs and and arms. We're going to get to that in a minute. But first, let's deal with the deepest need, and that's your sin. My son, your sins are forgiven. Note the the almost rabid faith that these men have. Nothing's going to get in their way as they seek Jesus. They have faith and trust and belief in Jesus and nothing is going to get in the way of them getting to the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. Does Does that describe our kind of faith? Easter's a good time to take stock of where we are with the Lord. We're in a season of Lent. A lot of churches will note that. Season of preparation. Um, certainly saving faith is what's going on here, but, but the Christian life is one of constant faith in Christ. Does this kind of faith describe me, or have I gotten a little comfortable? I love how Jesus addresses the paralytic. Instead of looking down at him like society would have, the society these days would have said, hey, you must have done something terrible to be paralyzed. It doesn't work like that, by the way. Jesus looks at him and says, my son, what great words. As we think about Christ coming in and the triumphal entry next week and and our Christ on the cross dying for our sin and then being raised on the third day, these are important things. But my friends, we have to remember that our Savior is tender Now, he'll beat us upside the head with the gospel sometimes, won't he? 
He'll rebuke us when we need to be rebuked. There is a tenderness to our Savior. He will not extinguish a flickering flame. He will not break a bruised reed. My son, your sins are forgiven. This trusting faith is contrasted directly with the faith, or the lack of faith rather, of the religious elite. The scribes and the Pharisees sitting there, they should have rejoiced. Hey, this guy's sins have been forgiven. That's fantastic. But in reality, we find in verses 6 through 7, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They thought they finally had what they had come for. They had caught Jesus. They had two options at this point. They could either trust that Christ is who He says He is, or that He's a charlatan and a liar. They came with hardened hearts. I remember in college, I had to give a persuasive speech in class. It's usually important to find a safe topic when you're doing that. I chose the safe topic of gun control. Now, I knew from previous discussions in this um, fairly liberal-leaning class I was in that this was going to be an uphill battle. Most of these folks, including the teacher, believed that you know, guns were the root of all evil. And you can imagine that to say that they listened to my presentation with hard hearts is an understatement. They came in with their minds made up against the good names of Winchester and Remington. My friends, this is what the scribes did that day. They came in with their minds already made up. May our hearts not be so hard like theirs. May we seek after the Lord with the trusting faith of those desperate men because our Savior came to deal with our deepest need. We all have a lot of needs. We have a lot of health needs. We have financial needs. We have relational needs. And the great thing is Christ promises to be with us in those things, to provide for us, to bring healing to us. He promises those things. But all those things are predicated upon first having a right relationship with Jesus. Because when we become Christians, we are adopted as His children, as His sons. It's like when you go to the doctor and you know, you're there for a sniffle. And he says, what's that large growth on your face? We've got to deal with that. There's a deeper need there that has to be dealt with first. Christ looks at this paralytic and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. We're going to deal with your arms in a minute. But first, we've got to get you right with Jesus. So we can trust that Christ can deal with our sin. When we become Christians, He not just deals with our guilt of our sin, but also the power of sin over us. That those chains have been broken. And He gives us the Holy Spirit to say no and to walk in holiness. It's a full package deal. And one day He will come and take away the presence of sin. I yearn for that day, my friends. Well, how can he do this? Well, because he's God. I mean, just very simply, Jesus is God. He's not just some moral teacher. They are right. Those scribes who said that only God can forgive sins, they are correct. Only God can do. 
But here in front of them is Yahweh Himself, the one who has made the universe and all that is in it. He is standing there in that dusty, now muddy room. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. Authority is the connection of right and ability. I have the ability to go steal your car. That does not give me the right. I don't have the authority. I have the right to demand that my children obey me, but my friends, I am reminded daily that the ability only belongs to God to change their little hearts. God, Christ here, has the right and authority to forgive sins. Why? Because He is God and He is the offended party. If there are three people on a, uh, on a playground, two boys and a girl, the two boys are hitting each other and then they get upset with each other because each one's hit each other, that girl has no power to forgive either one of those sins. She's not the offended party. God is always the offended party when we sin. It may involve others. But this is why uh, when David has had this terrible sin with Bathsheba, this adulterous affair, and when he has gone and killed Uriah and probably also a whole squad of soldiers who are with him, he can say in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, talking to God. Christ came, as one commentator said, to proclaim and provide forgiveness. He is here proclaiming forgiveness of sins and he will provide for it at the cross, as He lives in our place, as He dies in our place, and as He is raised in our place. Here is the Lamb of God proclaiming and providing forgiveness. The word forgiveness here is a unique one. Because it can mean not only forgiveness of sins, but it can mean to be set free. Don't you love that idea? In the Old Testament version, or the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word was often used to describe what happens to slaves when you free them. And that is what Christ does in our hearts. He frees us. He sets us free. He releases us from our sin, from our past, from our failures. Where's the proof? Well, Jesus knows the scribes, and He knows the Pharisees, and He knows what they're thinking. Psalm 139.2 says that God discerns our thoughts from afar. They're not very far here. The reception's pretty good. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And He calls them out on it in verse 8. And then He says something rather startling in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? This is an interesting question, isn't it? Because an argument can be made for both. It can be easier to say your sins are forgiven because who's going to prove otherwise? But it can be easier to say that you could heal this man's easier because only God can forgive sins. In fact, God's going to give Peter and Paul and others. But Peter and Paul, we have in Acts twice, they both look at a paralytic and say, hey, it's time to get up. And they're healed. But only God can forgive sins. What's easier? It's it's kind of a tricky question. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, his favorite description of himself, coming from uh, Daniel chapter 7, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And guess what? It works! Now think about that. Uh, Chrissy's uh, mom is in rehab or therapy for um, 
uh, getting a knee replacement. And her ligaments, it's been so long since she's needed this thing, her ligaments are, are really short or long or, or something. They're not right. And it's going to take months to get them right. This man's muscles have atrophied to the point where he has chicken legs. He has no muscles. And here is the one who created all things by the word of his power, and he speaks those muscles into existence. He didn't have to go through therapy. He just pops right up, and he walks out of there. That you may know that the Son of Man has the power and authority to forgive your sins. As we head to the table this morning, let's not forget who our Savior is. He is God. And here we have proof of our sins being forgiven. Just like He proved to all those who are there that He forgave the sins of the paralytic and and His friends as well, so too we have proof to us that our sins are forgiven. Are you struggling with that this morning? This table is proof. All the past wrongs, all the times we've fallen into temptation, all the failures in our marriages, our relationships, my friends, these are forgiven. How do we know? Because the powerful blood of Christ was spilled and the body of Christ was broken, all for the remission of your sins. Let's pray. Our Savior in heaven, we rejoice that the Son of Man has come. And then it pleased the Father to crush him that we might be saved. O oh Lord, we pray that Christ would soon return, that not only the, um, the power and the guilt of sin might be taken, but the very presence of it. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.